Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, we're going to dive deep into Nuggets-Lakers. The first two games of their series where the Nuggets lead 2-0 and have taken control on their home court in a way that I think is very possible for the Lakers to come back. We've seen the Lakers go on runs and we're going to talk about some of the errors and some of the sloppy play that the Lakers have made defensively that I think give them a real chance to come back in the series. But at the same token, we're going to talk a lot about why this is going to be very difficult in my opinion. And largely it comes down to Nikola Jokic being in my opinion, the best player on planet earth And we're going to talk about why I'm at that point to start the show. But after that, we're going to talk a little bit about Celtics heat. And then we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess we're going to talk a bit of NBA draft as well. Some NBA draft combine, some NBA draft, just general stuff that I'm sure you guys have questions about. And generally I want to make some combine notes that I don't know that I'll get a chance to otherwise. Okay. Let's start with the Lakers nuggets. The Lakers Lose to the Nuggets, 108 to 103. Behind another incredible performance from Nikola Jokic, but more importantly, a superhuman Jamal Murray performance in the fourth quarter. I believe he had 18 in the fourth quarter. Ends up with 37 points, 10 rebounds, five assists to really create offense. When the Nuggets didn't have a crazy amount going up until kind of the ending of that third quarter. The Lakers figured some things out later in the second quarter. I thought they played pretty well early in the third quarter defensively, but in general, what Denver is doing really well is taking advantage of very small errors that the Lakers are making defensively. And we'll talk about that momentarily. But first, I want to start with Jokic, because I think we're at the point now where you can't start anywhere else when talking about a game involving the Nuggets. Nikola Jokic goes nine for 21 in this game. It was one of his least efficient games of the playoffs, but he still goes for 23, 17 and 12 in this game. And it's just the way that he literally takes advantage of every single thing that you do poorly. He is a supercomputer for finding even the smallest errors, for finding even not necessarily errors. In the first play that we break down in this game, it's going to be not even an error by LeBron. It's just that Jokic is thinking so clearly and thinking so intelligently about basketball that he sees exactly what's going to happen faster than everybody everybody else does. And this is not new information, And it's also not new that we've seen Nikola Jokic have success in the playoffs. If you look outside of last season when he was surrounded by very few real NBA rotation level players that can play high leverage playoff minutes, Jokic has consistently been drastically better in the playoffs than he has been in the regular season. Typically most guys, they see a very small drop off in terms of their production and efficiency in the playoffs once they get there. Jokic, up until last season, his numbers rose every year in the playoffs. His numbers got better. He got better 
when the moment mattered the most. And I think it's because of that ability to be a, su- a supercomputer, to be this incredible, unbelievable, intelligent, high-level thinker of basketball. And we're at the point now where I think I've been as hesitant as anybody to call him the best player in the world. For people that listen to the show and have listened to it for a long time, people know that I've, I've said Giannis is the answer to this for a couple of years now. I've thought Giannis is the best player in the world. I don't think I'm there anymore. I think it is Jokic. And I think it's not because I'm late to it, although I think I might be a little bit late this year getting to it. I would have said Giannis last year. I would have said Giannis the year before. And I don't know that we have like some LeBron James-esque figure in this league that is the clear king of the mountain right now. But I do think it's Jokic who is the best player in the league. And I think the reason for that is that supercomputer processing, but also the way that he's improved his conditioning, the way that he's improved as a scorer. I know that last season he actually averaged the most points he's ever averaged in a season before. And this season that took a very small step back as Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray got back into the fold and he started to play consistently a bit more often as a facilitator. The thing is, he's gotten way better as a scorer this year. He's become lethal in the mid-range. Not just good, but great in that mid-range area. He continues to knock down threes at a ridiculously high level. He's... Someone that has improved on the block just in terms of his footwork. We'll talk about that uh, later on as we break down film. Jokic only averaged 25 points per game this season, actually 24.5. That's down from 26.4 in his first MVP season, 27.1 in his second MVP season. But the assists went up. He averaged almost 10 assists per game. And the efficiency drastically went up. Nikola Jokic had a 70.1 true shooting percentage this year. That's insane. That's not something that is even plausible in my mind if you're not Stephen Curry taking threes on an obscene amount of your possessions and drilling them on 45% of them. He gets to the line a ton. He's gotten better drawing contact and figuring out ways to get to the basket and get all the way uh, to the rim with those little pump fakes, those up fakes. He averaged six free throws a game this season, but that's basically what he averaged last year. And he did it on shooting volume that is lower by like 20% or so this year, 15 to 20%. It's just that, Every single plausible mistake that you make. He's such an incredibly reactive player. We think about guys that are proactive in the NBA in terms of trying to score and try to get to their shot. Damian Lillard's a very proactive player in terms of the way that he goes about attacking defenses. There are certainly others. Nikola Jokic is a reactive player. He catches and he surveys. He sees what's going on. He finds 
exactly where your fatal flaw is every single time down the court. He's processing the space he has on the court. He's processing the man in front of him. He's processing the man on the backside. He's doing it all simultaneously. His spatial awareness is unlike anything I've ever seen on a basketball court. His skill level is very close. The only reason it's not as good as his spatial awareness is there's a real case that it his spatial awareness on a basketball court might be like the greatest we've seen, certainly since I've been alive at the very least. But then you throw in the touch where nobody in the league, I think right now has better touch outside of Stephen Curry than Nikola Jokic. Then you throw in the enormous hands that allow him to execute every single pass from any angle. The strength to be able to hold his position and hold his ground whenever he needs to. I don't think that there's anybody that combines that number of just sheer gifts across the league right now. And because of that, I think I'm ready to call Nikola Jokic the best player in the league. The defense is still okay. It's not great. Honestly, I thought his defense in the back half of the regular season was pretty poor. And then early in the playoffs, I think it's been better. I think in this series, it's been hit or miss. He's been great on the defensive glass, as we'll talk about here momentarily. He's been great walling up Anthony Davis one-on-one on the block. But like, if you go and you watch Rui's points, Rui has something like 39 points in two games now. A lot of them come on Jokic. A lot of them come where like Jokic is, you know, supposed to be a help defender at the basket and rotates late because Rui covers ground a little bit quicker than some of the other guys on the Lakers. Some of it's, you know, Rui just being able to isolate Jokic occasionally. And then Jokic in space is still a question. He's still not a great help defender because he doesn't get off the ground super high. There are things here that are, he's a flawed player. There isn't a perfect player in the league right now. Giannis Antetokounmpo, you go back to game five against the Heat, you know, we can point to the fact he had over 40 points in that game. I think he had like 45 and I think he had like 17 or something absurd like that. He went 13 of 23 or 10 of 23 or something from the foul line. And that's been a consistent issue throughout the course of his career, his inability to make free throws for a player that lives at the foul line. He leaves a lot on the table and teams can exploit that. Teams can exploit Stephen Curry a little bit on defense still. Steph is an underrated defender in many ways, but he is still exploitable due to his size, as we saw in the Lakers series occasionally. Kevin Durant hasn't been on the floor enough, frankly. Joel Embiid, we talked about this on this show, how much the Celtics actually took advantage of him defensively uh, in that series. I think by and large in the regular season, Joel Embiid is a much better defender than Nikola Jokic. You know what? Like Jokic has been a better defender in the playoffs than Embiid at this point, especially this year, maybe not in the past, but this year, especially. They figured out how to play differing coverages with Jokic, whereas with Embiid, and part of this could be on Doc Rivers, we'll find out under a new coach. 
now that Embiid is in his prime and capable of doing a lot, the Nuggets have been able and willing to explore and experiment defensively. They'll play him at the level of screen sometimes where he can use his length. He's really long. He's a seven foot three, seven foot four wingspan. And he's able to recover back and use that length in his incredible hand-eye coordination to cause issues. He's incredibly intelligent. He's an incredibly high-level thinker on that end. He doesn't have the gifts to be able to cover ground in the way that you want elite-level centers to do so defensively. And that's why, again, throughout the series, it's been a mixed bag. But he's done well on the block against Anthony Davis, and he's crushed the defensive glass. Those are two enormous things. Two huge things that in this game particularly, Anthony Davis had all sorts of issues. Went 4-15 from the field. He ends up with 18 points because he gets to the line 11 times, but... This was not an Anthony Davis game. And obviously Jamal Murray goes off later in this game, goes for 37 and he just got scalding hot. Part of it I thought was frankly, maybe this is where we'll get into the tape and now we'll break down a little bit of tape. I think the Lakers have left a lot on the table in the series defensively. But again, when you leave stuff on the table defensively, against the Nuggets, there is no team in the NBA better positioned to exploit what you leave on the table than the Denver Nuggets. And that's because of Jokic. So let's kind of jump into the tape here and talk about why I do think the Nuggets have been incredibly impactful and impressive in this series, but also some of the things the Lakers are doing poorly. I can pinpoint, I think, three things defensively that are causing the Lakers real issues. So I think first there have been some just real communication flaws throughout the course of this series. And that's a significant concern for the Lakers moving forward. They have to clean up their communication in exchanges. I do wonder if at times that actually leads into the second issue, which for me is that I think they're giving up switches a little bit too easily at times It's very hard to switch on the Nuggets because of Jokic's ability to take you onto the block and just absolutely crush you. If you switch against Jokic, even with Anthony Davis on the weak side, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard to be impactful in that way. The last thing is that the Lakers' transition defense has been very poor. Uh, And we'll talk about that tonight. They gave up, I think 22 fast break points. It's not like a crazy number, but to me, it feels like a lot of their issues are real, just execution problems and also strategy problems where I don't know why Darvin Ham is crashing the offensive glass with one to two guys every single time in the way that he is, but it's creating real man advantage situations for the Denver Nuggets and any time that they have a man advantage, they're going to go. So let's, let's talk about this here. So Aaron Gordon, we're at the 10 minute mark of the first quarter. Aaron Gordon has the ball at the left elbow. This is just going to be a classic Denver Nuggets kind of flex offense set. You're going to see that Jokic is going to set a screen 
Michael Porter is going to flex cut baseline. That is a classic flex offense staple. And then Jokic is going to come up to the top of the key and catch the ball. And what you're going to see here is just the smallest little hesitation from LeBron James. He just gets caught looking at the ball and ball watching for a split second. It's not, I don't even think this is bad defense from LeBron. He's just following the ball to see who it's going to. And in that moment, he probably gets a little bit high in his stance. I don't know if he thought there was a dribble handoff maybe coming to Aaron Gordon. If you look at where his feet are, his left foot is actually above where Aaron Gordon's is on the court, which almost makes me think he's trying to deny a dribble handoff. I don't know if maybe he saw something in the tape, but as soon as Jokic sees this, Aaron Gordon cuts back door and Jokic just feeds him immediately. Again, I don't even think this is terrible defense totally from LeBron. It's just that Jokic is so smart that he sees that foot being just a little bit too high up the court. And at that point it's curtains and Aaron Gordon's athletic enough to beat him. Next play down is at the nine minute mark of the first quarter. This is just a horn set here. They're going to bring the ball into Aaron Gordon again, left wing flex cut out of the horn set to Michael Porter. It's an easy bucket for Michael Porter at the rim. So pay attention here again. The Lakers are not switching everything here. They're actually trying to fight through the actions, as you will see. And then additionally, they're making sure that with Jared Vanderbilt on the court, this was the big Lakers adjustment. They brought Jared Vanderbilt into the starting lineup. Jared Vanderbilt did a pretty good job on Jamal Murray in this game, I thought, defensively, but he just takes a lot off the court offensively for the Lakers, and it's hard to play him. This is just a slick little flex cut. AD does a pretty good job of kind of helping and then recovering out to Jokic. Again, it's literally the same set as last time, just about, where flex cut leads into Jokic curling off of this action from Jamal Murray. It's just a different read off of that action, right? Here, it would be very easy for Aaron Gordon just to throw this ball to Jokic. Jokic tries to make a play a different way. Maybe you get it back into a handoff series for Jamal Murray. Maybe you see that Michael Porter Jr. has D'Angelo Russell sealed high and you throw it that way. Here, though, this is just not good enough from D'Angelo Russell. D'Angelo Russell has not been good in this series. He went three for eight from the field, but honestly, he was better on offense than he was on defense tonight, which is terrifying if you're a Lakers supporter. They need to find an answer for D'Angelo Russell. And the reason I put this clip in is because I wanted – to showcase something there about Russell, it, it's going to get worse throughout the course of this. This is the next piece of what's happening here. This isn't really because they're crashing too many guys, but what you're going to see here is something that's happened throughout the course of this series way too often. And it's that Nikola Jokic isn't just beating 
Anthony Davis down the floor. He's beating him by leaps and bounds down the floor a lot of the time. Anthony Davis, I would bet you, is still at the baseline in this clip. And Nikola Jokic is all the way to the three-point line. It's just such a significant odd man advantage, again, for a guy that's a supercomputer at processing basketball. So here, D'Angelo Russell steps up to try and stop Nikola Jokic because Anthony Davis is just way behind the play. And now you've left Austin Reeves because of this and because of how the Nuggets spread to the three-point line every time in transition. You've left Austin Reeves in a one-on-two. And Austin Reeves has to at least respect the fact that Bruce Brown is attacking. If Bruce Brown just stays behind the three-point line, I would bet you that Reeves just rotates and allows LeBron to probably rotate over and then they play help and hope Anthony Davis recovers. But because Bruce Brown presses the issue there and attacks Austin Reeves briefly, he forces Austin to engage him. And that just sets up a circumstance where Jamal Murray's wide open from the corner for three. This is going to be in almost every single time wide open three for Jamal Murray. Again, though, to me, it's because Anthony Davis is way behind the play. I mean, we're at the ball is like, at the opposing team's free throw line. And Anthony Davis is still not beyond half court at this point, as you can see. He's just now getting in when the ball goes up from the deep corner. Anthony Davis, the fact that Jokic is beating Anthony Davis down the court, creating these odd man situations, it's a killer for the Lakers right now. That's not, that's one where he just missed an alley-oop and that will happen sometimes but he needs to do better on some of these other ones that we're going to showcase here. This one is an example of what's kind of happening when the nuggets get these easy switches, right? So Jared Vanderbilt here is guarding Jamal Murray. As you can see, Anthony Davis is on Nikola Jokic. Jamal Murray sets this little rub screen for Jokic to go down onto the block. Anthony Davis is there in help. And because it's the same side help, it's an easy kick out to Jamal Murray, which results in a real rotation. Anthony Davis has to go and recover onto LeBron's man, who is Aaron Gordon in this case. Aaron Gordon uh, goes to the weak side now, which sets up this very easy post-up against Jared Vanderbilt. Again, this is because of this easy switch that they gave up. You can't have Jared Vanderbilt on the court guarding Nikola Jokic. He's good against Jamal Murray. He's good at making sure that Jamal's life is harder, but he's not strong enough through his lower half to be able to stop Jokic from getting deep on the block. So here, Jokic just backs him down. He gets him all the way inside the block here. And this is just an easy drop step for Jokic and finish. They're switching too easily, I think. I really do think the Lakers are switching too easily. They didn't do it a lot later, and that's what you'll probably see, although I don't know how many plays I got from later on. Again, another horn set here. This one comes out to Jamal Murray, and this is where we start getting into communication errors for the Los Angeles Lakers. LeBron is on Jamal Murray, and eventually Jokic is going to come up and set a screen. 
They both go toward the ball. Why do both LeBron and Anthony Davis both go toward the ball when LeBron actually goes under this screen action originally? This is not a blitz. This is not like a circumstance where they're trying to get the ball out of Jamal Murray's hands in order to leave Nikola Jokic wide open or force a rotation. I think what happens is that Anthony Davis gets a little bit too concerned here after being too deep defensively in the Jamal Murray pull-up. But it leads to a significant communication error where there are two on the ball here, nobody rotating over, and Nikola Jokic, an easy layup. That's an easy shot for Nikola Jokic. This is just a real communication error here in terms of coverages for the Lakers. It felt like LeBron and Anthony Davis there confused the coverage in terms of what they wanted to run. Next play down, Aaron Gordon bringing the ball up the court. Little rub screen for Jamal Murray there. And then you're going to see the little exchange after that rub screen where Jared Vanderbilt falls down. So Vanderbilt falls here. He's down. Jamal Murray goes to come back up for the dribble handoff, right? And again, it feels like Vanderbilt and LeBron both go to Aaron Gordon here. Instead of fall, instead of someone trying to fight over the top of this dribble handoff or going under the dribble handoff to contest Jamal Murray. This is a communication error and it leads to a wide open three from Jamal Murray again. There's just nobody there. You can see Anthony Davis's arms are up. He's wondering, wait, what happened? Where's the help here? Right? What's going on? This one is just a communication error in transition, right? So here, Jeff Green, nobody picks up Jeff Green. Why does nobody pick up Jeff Green? What you'll see is that because Jokic is running the court as hard as he is, beating Anthony Davis down the court, Rui's man is Jokic. They want to make sure someone is attached to Jokic at all times, right? Because of that, Rui is late getting there to try and stop the ball. And once you get Jeff Green downhill, Jeff Green's older, he's still able to jump and he is still able to get up off the ground and throw down in transition. Again, this is just, these are communication errors. Someone's got to pick up Jeff Green on the ball. Here we go. This is a miss from Dennis Schroeder. What you're going to see here, Jamal Murray eventually going to get the ball in semi-transition. And nobody picks up Jamal Murray. Rui eventually realizes that somebody has to. But Jamal doesn't have the ball yet. He just gets it here. And what you're going to see is Rui is saying to Dennis Schroeder, you have to go and pick up the ball. You can see Rui pointing over to Jamal Murray. D'Angelo Russell is pointing now to Dennis Schroeder. You have to go pick up the ball. Jamal realizes this. You can see that he really speeds up. He gets some bend and just says, okay, I'm going to go. Rui thinks that, okay, nobody's picking up the ball. I have to go pick up the ball or else he's just going to walk into a three. But because he does that and because Nikola Jokic is beating Anthony Davis down the court every single time. This is the one minute mark of the first quarter. 
Rui has to leave Jokic and you leave Jokic wide open at the basket and you're forcing Lonnie Walker to try and rotate over and pray. That's just not going to work defensively. These are sloppy errors from the Los Angeles Lakers. I see here that Swaggy D in the comments on YouTube says, the first and second quarters don't matter as much. Fast forward to the third and fourth. I completely disagree. The Lakers should have been winning this game in the first quarter by eight or nine, I thought. I thought they outplayed the Nuggets in the first quarter of this game. But because of these sloppy errors in transition, because of these sloppy errors in communication in the half court, it ended up being a circumstance where they didn't get out to a big enough lead early. And because of that, the Nuggets were able to come back into this game and fire. That's why, to me, this stuff matters. I don't really think that you can really argue with that. Like, you know, as John E. says in the comments here, the Nuggets were lucky in the first half and happy to be down by five. I completely agree. I didn't think the Nuggets played all that well in the first half. So here now we're at five minutes mark, five minute mark in the second. The Lakers are up 11. You're going to see here, this is again, just Rui Achimura is not a good matchup for Nikola Jokic. This was the big talking point after the first game, right? Rui, he's a, he's able to stop Nikola Jokic. No, he's not. This, this is not something that's going to work, right? We need to acknowledge that this is not something that's going to work. The idea behind it is not terrible. The idea behind it is that if you put Rui, who's a bigger, stronger body, onto Nikola Jokic, you can use Anthony Davis to come over from the weak side. And to help later, because of Anthony Davis's length, he can stay attached to his man and be late in help and still contest. It's just not going to work to be able to do this. Look at how quickly. Typically, Nikola Jokic is somebody that's going to survey and he's going to see, he's going to let... KCP cut through the play. He's going to let Jamal Murray maybe go set uh, backside pin down and so that Aaron Gordon can come up. Not here. He sees Rui on him. He's going to go pretty quick as soon as KCP clears the lane. As soon as he clears, he's gone. And it's just, this is not a good matchup. Now, what the Lakers did in the second half is they put LeBron on him. I think LeBron's a better matchup. LeBron's strong enough. He's physical. Frankly, I thought what Bill Simmons said on Twitter tonight, that the refs don't really want to call fouls on LeBron. I think that's pretty fair and accurate to an extent. That's their matchup, I think. If you don't want to put Anthony Davis on Nikola Jokic, that's what you have to do. I think you put LeBron on him. Here you're going to see Anthony Davis go up. and Anthony Davis falling on the ground is a significant problem in this series. Again, because all it's going to do is it's going to set up a circumstance where the Nuggets get a five on four because Jokic is leading the break. And when the center can lead the break as quickly as he can, you're getting the ball down the court so fast, you even stop the ball here in a pretty reasonable way with D'Angelo Russell. But again, you set up a one-on-two on the backside where Lonnie Walker is covering two guys, and that's just not a great sustainable outcome. Here we go, 4.30 mark of the second quarter now. What you're going to see here 
is just a classic Nikola Jokic post leads to a Bruce Brown cut. Again, LeBron has been involved in a few of these miscommunication issues. I don't think LeBron has been awesome defensively in this series. He's been good. He's taken on some tough assignments. Having to guard Jokic, having to deal in space with Jamal Murray. But what you're going to see here on the backside, particularly, LeBron is on Bruce Brown here. He's still on Bruce Brown. They eventually, you're going to see what I think LeBron may have thought was in exchange between Bruce Brown and KCP. Maybe I'm not totally sure why uh, maybe LeBron is communicating with D'Angelo Russell saying, Hey, I want to be the low man on this possession switch. Right. There has to be some sort of communication there. Eventually D'Angelo comes up to Bruce Brown there. And it looks like, It's hard to say what their plan is because D'Angelo is coming up here, not because LeBron wants to be the low man, but because KCP is kind of moving up and he sees it. And LeBron's just kind of ball watching. He just totally loses track of Bruce Brown here. I don't know whether to call that like a miscommunication with him and D'Angelo Russell, maybe where LeBron thought they were switching or if LeBron was just ball watching, but he just gets face cut here and it's a real problem. It's a, it's a real, these communication issues or these little off like backside switches or these exchanges that LeBron is involved in, he needs to clean it up a little bit because Jokic will kill you every single time you make a mistake. So here, again, I mentioned earlier that the Lakers are just crashing the glass so aggressively. This is an attempt by Dennis Schroeder. He falls. Rui instead of getting back in transition defense, decides to crash the offensive glass. And now we're at a point where this is, what do you want to call this? Like a four on two, four on three circumstance where look where Rui and Dennis Schroeder are. And again, because Anthony Davis has to stop the ball, he has to leave Aaron Gordon here. Aaron Gordon gets the ball. It's an easy dunk for someone that's that athletic. Now we're at the 11 minute mark of the third quarter. Empty side ball screen. Jamal Murray gets Anthony Davis on him. They get this switch with Jared Vanderbilt. As soon as Jokic sees Jared Vanderbilt on him, he knows that he can post. He knows that he's going to have no problem getting all the way to the basket, posts him, bullies him all the way there. Easy bucket. Jokic here. This feels like kind of a switch that just comes too early. If you look, Anthony Davis is picking up Nikola Jokic, and instead they just decide to switch this action for reasons beyond my comprehension. I don't know why they went towards switching the Nuggets. That's a very strange choice in my opinion. And now you just have this circumstance where D'Angelo Russell is going to have to guard Nikola Jokic on the block. That forces LeBron to come up off of Aaron Gordon here in help. I don't really blame LeBron for this one. I think this is the right call. Once you see that Jokic is going to the block against D'Angelo Russell, you have to go and aggressively try and stop that from happening. He does that. He gets his hands up. He tries to stop the cut, the pass to the cutter, which is Aaron Gordon. 
I think that he knows where Jokic is going there. It's just that Jokic can execute that pass too easily. And it puts a little too much pressure on Austin Reeves as the backside tagger there and the help man that's helping the helper. Here we go again, 640, third quarter. Early screen. Jamal Murray being guarded by Jared Vanderbilt. Early screen action. They auto-switch it. Again, I don't know why. If you're going to have Jared Vanderbilt on the court, you can't auto-switch that screening action. He is not strong enough to deal with Nikola Jokic. And this is just LeBron kind of getting driven by Jamal Murray because they auto-switched that action. LeBron on Jamal Murray is not a good matchup. Jared Vanderbilt on Nikola Jokic is not a good matchup. You can't just auto-switch these things. I don't know why the Lakers are auto-switching in the way that they are. Easy bucket for Jamal Murray. Now six minutes left in the third quarter. Again, you will see... Missed layup, two guys crash the glass. Jokic, great defensive rebounder, grabs, goes, leads the break, beats Anthony Davis down the court. Because he's beating Anthony Davis down the court, Austin Reeves has to come toward the middle of the court in order to try and stop the ball. Comes off of Michael Porter Jr., leads to a wide open three again for Porter. It's kind of just simple stuff for the Lakers. They can clean this up. That's why I don't think the Lakers are out of this series by any stretch. These are things that they can clean up, in my opinion. It's just kind of a mess right now. And this is uh, just some awesome stuff here where Jokic hits this cross-corner kick so quickly that he forces AD and Austin Reeves into this recovery circumstance where they both have to kind of fly toward the ball and everything. And now we've got Aaron Gordon on Austin Reeves. I love Austin Reeves as a player. I think he's a pretty underrated defender. But because you have the switch, Austin can deal with Michael Porter Jr. because Michael Porter Jr. doesn't use his height and athleticism like someone who is six foot ten and athletic typically does. He likes to just kind of hang out on the perimeter a little bit more than he should. Aaron Gordon's going to put Austin Reeves in the basket, as you're going to see here. Look at how far back Austin Reeves flies when Aaron Gordon makes contact with him. Goes from the dotted half circle all the way back to that semicircle in the restricted area. And he just gets completely blown off the play. This is awesome from Denver. This is just awesome stuff. In here with two minutes left in the third now, Jokic. As you can see, they're no longer kind of auto-switching this. They're having Schroeder fight over the top. And I just don't think LeBron is active enough in drop here, to be honest. I liked the adjustment. But LeBron's going to have to be a little bit more active in drop. And he can't let Jamal Murray just kind of hop into a wide open mid-range jumper. This is now with 10 minutes left in the fourth. Nikola Jokic. Again, they have the on-ball defender fight over the top. You have LeBron in drop. Lonnie does get back. He gets the backside contest. It, it's just kind of... He needs to be willing to try and contest that shot, I think, from Jamal. I get that teams are okay with mid-range jumpers. I don't think you can be this okay with mid-range jumpers. And now, especially from Jamal Murray now, five-minute mark of the fourth. 
Another empty side action between Bruce Brown and Nikola Jokic. Nikola Jokic still being guarded by LeBron. Jamal Murray's going to come up. He's going to set this little backside action here with Aaron Gordon to potentially cut back door. They switch it with Anthony Davis and Rui because Rui is just a little bit too late here. I don't know why Rui is not attached to Jamal Murray in this circumstance. He's sagging off a little bit too far. And because he's sagging off too far, it ends up having to be a switch. Anthony Davis is forced into a switch. And then that becomes a switch because you just kind of have to at that point. And the end result is an open three where Jamal Murray walks into it. it. There are just these little, little things that the Lakers can clean up. It's not a lot. It's not a crazy amount. It's just communication stuff. It's just like engagement stuff. I think the Lakers probably win game three. If they come out with like the effort and aggression and intensity of having watched the film on this, and understanding that we weren't that far behind the Nuggets in this game. We probably outplayed the Nuggets in the first half for sure and should have been up by way more than five. And we probably hurt ourselves a little bit more than anything else. I think the Lakers probably win game three. I think the Nuggets win the series is where I'm at. The Nuggets are playing exceptionally well. I think the Nuggets, again, are built to take advantage of any singular small mistake that you make because Jokic is so good, and because their ball movement is so good. Their ball movement puts a lot of pressure on defenses. I thought that their physicality, the Lakers' physicality early in this game was pretty good. I thought Jared Vanderbilt did bring something early in the game to try to slow down Jamal Murray and try to force him into tougher spots. I probably would have gone back to that at a certain point. I think that would have been smart to go back to Jared Vanderbilt a little bit later in this game, especially when Jared Jamal Murray got smoking hot. I think you probably had to, but they didn't. And it's hard to go to Jamal or to Jared Vanderbilt because he takes a lot off the court defensively. He allows a hiding spot for Jokic or he allows Aaron Gordon to be a roaming help defender in a significant way. It's really hard, really, really hard with Jared Vanderbilt on the court offensively. Okay. That's all I've got on the Lakers and nuggets so far. The thing that I keep coming back to more than anything in that series is the Lakers haven't found an answer yet schematically. And I think in part, the reason they haven't found an answer is because they keep making these little sloppy errors defensively. that keep hindering them. We'll see if they improve it. If not, it's going to be a short series. It'll be five. Uh, If they do, I think this can be a longer competitive series. Uh, But I think the Nuggets certainly have the advantage now, and I think the Nuggets are in a very good position to reach the NBA Finals, certainly. Let's take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to dive into Celtics heat and how I think the Celtics are just letting Jimmy Butler. They're making things way too easy for Jimmy Butler is maybe the way to put it. We're talking about players securing the bag. 
when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Let's talk Celtics Heat. The Celtics and the Heat, I think, was expected to be a very competitive series. I think a lot of people expected it to be a very defensive series because of the way that Miami can kind of gum up the works a little bit on defense. But I actually think that's the wrong way to think of this series. The Heat are at their best defensively when they can collapse in, especially with Kevin Love and Max Struess in the starting lineup, when they can collapse the paint and cause teams a lot of issues in terms of driving and finishing. They're a great defensive rebounding team, and they're a great schematic defensive team. Where you can catch the Heat is if you can space them out, and you can cause them issues that way. The Celtics have the personnel to space them out. They didn't do that in Game 1 for specifically the first half of Game 1. They adjusted a little bit in the second half and went smaller, 
I think that that's what they're going to have to do against the Heat. I think they have to live with playing smaller. And as they play smaller, they need to hope that Jimmy Butler doesn't catch them. (laughs) Jimmy Butler is ridiculous. We know that Jimmy Butler is ridiculous. We understand that Jimmy Butler is one of the five best players on planet Earth right now with the way that he's playing. He goes for 35, seven and six in this game. He also has six steals, plays incredibly well defensively. Jimmy Butler is the reason they won this game, right? Incredible, incredible performance. I think the Celtics came into this game with a really poor strategy. They came into this game with the same idea that they had against Philly to play Robert Williams, right? The problem is against Boston, or I'm sorry, against Miami, there's nobody to really help off of at the three-point line right now. They had Robert Williams guard Kevin Love. You can't really use Rob Williams to help off of Kevin Love because he will hit kick out threes ad nauseum. The other thing is that Eric Spolstra is unbelievable at scheming different ways to get guys involved in ball screen actions. Robert Williams was great against the 76ers as a help defender flying across and like being able to just kind of throw everything off. Timely doubles, you know, timely rim rotations, everything like that. I did not think Robert Williams played well in drop coverage in that Philadelphia 76ers series. And by starting Robert Williams, you gave Jimmy Butler a target early in this game. And that's where we're going to start with the take. And I think that ultimately this was the biggest issue for the Boston Celtics. They never found an answer for Jimmy Butler and they made things way too easy for Jimmy to find the advantageous matchups that he wanted. That is what Jimmy Butler does. Jimmy Butler is slow. He is methodical. He is going to find the matchup that he wants in order to beat you. The Celtics made it easy by putting Robert Williams on the court. So here we're going to see Jimmy Butler come off of this little rub action screen. They switch it and get Al Horford onto Jimmy Butler. I don't know why you're switching that action, frankly. That just doesn't make sense to me from the start. And now we're going to see Bam Adebayo eventually is going to come up. Jimmy, as you'll see there, recognizes this. And this is what I'm talking about when I'd say that Jimmy Butler is as good as any player in the league at pinpointing specific matchups that he wants. You'll see here, Max Struess is coming up as if he's going to take this dribble handoff. Jimmy says, no, we don't want this. Go away. And then he waves up Bam Adebayo. This creates a circumstance where with Bam, who's setting this incredible screen to get Al Horford switched onto him, this is just a switch situation against Rob Williams. And Rob Williams is not good enough in space to be able to contest Jimmy Butler when he's on a mid-range heater like he's been in this entire playoffs. That's a walk-in shot for Jimmy Butler. He's making that 60% of the time right now. Here we go again. Jimmy Butler takes this little screen. They switch it. Get Jason Tatum on him. 
Now, Bam Adebayo comes up because Bam is being guarded by Robert Williams. Now, you've got Robert Williams involved in the action again. He is so deep in this drop here. And eventually, he just gets flat-footed in his drop. Again, Rob Williams has not been a great drop defender in these playoffs. You can catch him. This is too deep. And he just gets flat-footed there. And Jimmy's really good at changing pace. This is just bad defense, in my opinion. Not good enough. Foul. Easy couple of points again. 625 mark of the first quarter here. This is supposed to be a double drag involving Kevin Love and Bam Adebayo. He sees that Rob Williams is on Kevin Love, so he just sends Bam Adebayo packing. He says, go. Get away. I don't want you. Literally says, Bam, go through the play. We This is not what we want. He takes the single ball screen because he knows that Rob Williams is going to be in drop. I believe that's Malcolm Brogdon on Jimmy here. It's a little bit strange to me that Joe Missoula keeps going to Brogdon as like a stopper or like a quote unquote stopper kind of guy against these great players. He did it in the Philly series as well against James Harden. These guys kind of want Brogdon on them because Brogdon's feet aren't awesome. I think Brogdon actually does a pretty good job getting over the top of this screen here. Again, though, Rob Williams is not far enough to actually cut off Jimmy Butler here and drop. I get that he has to actually be in position to be able to get back out and contest that Kevin Love three-pointer. This is a tough gap to cover if you're Rob Williams, but he actually does need to be a foot over here to the left. He doesn't actually stop the drive here at all. Malcolm Brogdon is not recovered back into this play yet, and it just ends up being an easy layup for Jimmy Butler to slither into. Now we're at the six-minute mark of the first quarter. And again, Jimmy pretends like he's going to reject this screen and then just reverses back. I don't think he ever had any intention of rejecting that screen. I think the whole point in this action is to get Robert Williams isolated onto him as a drop defender again. And that's what happens. He gets Rob Williams isolated onto him again. He strings him out. And there's just no contest. He essentially walks into a mid-range jumper without a contest again. That's basically eight points now in the first quarter against Rob Williams. This one now in the first quarter again. Rob Williams just picks him up in transition. And Jimmy's just like, okay, this is what I want. I'm just going to go attack. He attacks. Gets the easy kick out after the help has to come. Because this is help that has to come. I think Jalen is smart here to help. But because he helps, it leads to a wide open Caleb Martin three. That's like 11 points in this specific matchup here. Now we're going to go to the second quarter with two minutes left. They have taken Rob Williams off of the court, which is an intelligent move in my opinion. Rob Williams did end up playing 26 minutes in this game. But to me, it is not an accident that Rob Williams was a minus 14 in this game and was the worst Boston Celtic defensively. I thought the most or the, uh, the one that got exploited most uh, here though, he is not on the court and this is just the Celtics. They're switching everything now. That's a little 
action there to get Jason Tatum off of Jimmy Butler, and now they have Brogdon on him. Ball comes back out. You're going to see a few more screening actions, and eventually Jimmy just back cuts Malcolm Brogdon, who is ball watching again. Just watch Jimmy Butler. He's just methodically, slowly spacing. Bam comes up, sets this screen. He sees Malcolm Brogdon ball watching. Jimmy Butler's off-ball movement is just absolutely elite. There's no way to slow him down as an off-ball mover. He's constantly moving, constantly working, constantly trying to find little matchups he wants, little advantages, every single thing. This one now, 355 of the third. Jimmy Butler has Jason Tatum on him, and they run a little action here, and the Celtics switch it. Celtics switch it to get Derek White on him. He turns the corner on Derek White. Easy little mid-range floater. Again, here you're going to see a small exchange there. After Jason Tatum is guarding Kyle Lowry, they just call out a switch. This is too easy of a switch. Jimmy Butler wants Derek White on him right now. He eventually just kind of goes between the legs, puts him to sleep, gets the foul on Derek White. Derek White's probably not quite strong enough to deal with Jimmy. I think they're going to need White in this series, though, in general. I think that their best lineups probably involve him if he can be good enough to stick. It is also possible that they just go Smart Brown, Tatum, Brogdon, Horford. That actually might be their best lineup. But I would say Derek White's going to have to give them 20 to 25 minutes a game in this series because I don't like Robert Williams's matchup in this series at all. Here, again, they switch to get Peyton Pritchard locked on to Jimmy Butler. I mean, Peyton Pritchard's feisty and he tries very hard. You can't expect... Peyton Pritchard to hold up against Jimmy here. Al Horford recognizes it for what it's worth. He sees it for what it is. Again, though, you're putting Malcolm Brogdon here into a two-on-one circumstance because of the double that has to come from Al Horford. I don't really blame Malcolm Brogdon for this. You kind of just have to make a choice. One or the other, do you guard the guy at the basket or at the three-point line? He does a good job cutting off the angle to Cody Cody Zeller here. The problem is that it then leaves Caleb Martin wide open. You'd like Derek White just to make that full rotation there, in my opinion. Force the reversal back up. Hope that Jason Tatum can get back up to Max Struess. Hope that Peyton Pritchard can get back up to Kyle Lowry. Then you're actually basically fine. Instead, White stunts and gets the late contest, but it's an open three. Again, I think that the original sin there is the switch that came too easily, right? As you will see, Jason Tatum is guarding Jimmy Butler here. There isn't really an actual screening action that is that strong there. Kyle Lowry's physical and he's tough for a guard and he has a low center of gravity. I think Jason kind of just needs to fight through that at the end of the day. And the end result at the one minute mark of the third quarter. 
is you put Malcolm Brogdon into this tough two-on-one, and it leads to a Caleb Martin three. Seven-minute mark of the fourth quarter. Again, switch comes too easily. This is the matchup that Jimmy wants. He's having small set screens. He gets Derek White. Gets him in the mid-range, hits this contested turnaround. Derek does a fine job on that, but I just don't think that Jimmy's really feeling Derek White there that much. He's able to get that penetration against White because he's stronger and has that low center of gravity. If you let Jimmy Butler get into that little 18 to six to 18 to 12 foot range, and you let him get to his move that he wants, which I think in that case actually was the turnaround, it's going to be really hard. Next play here. Again, now they're actually trying to fight over the top, as you can see. This ends up just being a peel switch where Jalen fight gets back over to Gabe Vincent here. But they actually are kind of trying to fight. It's just that this is a good screen from Caleb Martin. If I'm realistically, if I'm Boston here, I think that I do want Malcolm to like play a little bit more aggressively at the ball there and hope that Jalen can recover and then have Brogdon recover back to Gabe Vincent. If Gabe Vincent's going to beat me, that's fine. I'm not letting Jimmy Butler beat me by getting the matchup that he wants. He's just not, he's not feeling Malcolm Brogdon there at all. Malcolm doesn't really contact him until like he goes up for the shot really. Uh, and that ends up being a nine point lead at the five minute mark of the fourth quarter. The Heat scored 123 points in this game. Look, they shot 16 of 31 from three. That's probably not going to happen again. Then again, the Miami Heat have been exceptionally hot from three in the playoffs. So it is possible. But this was a hot shooting night. But I think the hot shooting night in part came because they were allowing too many easy switches. If I was Boston, I would not be allowing this many easy switches next game. And if they do, I think Jimmy Butler is going to continue to absolutely dominate in the way that he has throughout the course of these playoffs. Uh, I think the Celtics still have an advantage in this series. I think that schematically in terms of the roster, them being able to go small is going to be a little bit easier. And I think their ability to space out the court is going to allow them to cause more issues for Miami. I just didn't like their defensive strategy. We've seen Joe Missoula go through this. It seems like he really tries to figure some things out early in the course of these playoff series and then kind of figure it out and adjust based off of that. And in this case, it feels like that's what happened in game one. They'll make some adjustments and we'll see where it goes. But they can't play drop with Robert Williams. I think that's a bad plan. I would play probably drop without Horford next game to start and see if that works and not give up as many easy switches. Uh, that's the critical factor here. They gave Jimmy Butler too many advantageous matchups for what he wants. Okay. Finally here, we're going to talk a little bit about the NBA draft. If you guys have any questions on the NBA draft, please feel free to throw them in the comments. I will answer them. I'm going to put that into the comments as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the NBA draft combine while we're here. The NBA draft combine 
often ends up being this really big week that matters mostly because The reason it matters is because it creates this environment where a lot of GMs, a lot of executives, a lot of agents, everybody is centered in Chicago for this little week here, right? The lottery is here. There are agent meetings with the NBPA. Uh, there are GM meetings. They really make it up to where it's this little centralized week-long NBA important meetings week agents meet with teams about you know free agency that they probably shouldn't be let's just be honest it happens teams meet with players that are in the draft all of this happens right so the important parts of this week are not what happens on the court. NBA teams don't really care about the athletic testing. They don't, they care about the measurements. It's really nice to get those measurements because sometimes they can showcase some real potential for upside. Like Jordan Walsh having like a seven foot two wingspan. I think that that's something NBA teams did not quite know that he had. I think they knew he was long. I don't think they knew he was that long. Adem Bona, kind of the opposite. I think NBA teams thought he had like a seven foot three wingspan. He ends up coming in at like seven foot and a half, if I remember correctly. The things that people tend to over index on someone like Dylan Mitchell going and shooting with reasonable mechanics in the star shooting drill. NBA teams, it's nice to get an up-close look at the shot. They don't think that that means Dylan Mitchell can shoot. We saw it in five-on-five. Five. Dylan Mitchell can't shoot. They do care about the five-on-five. Five. The five-on-five five is a good environment to see how big NBA, how big prospects look on the court to see how they perform in NBA level spacing. For instance, in the second game, does somebody like Reese Beekman and his speed really showcase in this environment better than what it does in Virginia, where the offense they're running is not well spaced and does not give him an opportunity to showcase downhill speed all that often. Reese Beekman was not very good offensively in the first game, was quite good offensively in his second game. They look for things in the five-on-five five that they didn't know ahead of time. And that's why I think I look at the combine a little bit differently than other people do. I don't look at like the raw numbers. Like I'll pull up like the box score for a couple of these games here while we're talking. You know, Turquavion Smith goes for 20 points. And he has three rebounds, four assists. 
in the second combine game. I didn't think he was very good in that game. We know that he can get to his pull-up three. He's pretty bad defensively. Turn the ball over a little bit more often. I didn't think he played well. On the other hand, Ben Ben Shepard, I thought was phenomenal. Ben Shepard goes for 25, but his 25 came within the flow. Honestly, I thought Ben Shepard played incredibly well in the game beforehand as well on, what was that, Wednesday. He had like 10 points, but you could see that he moved really well without the ball. You could see that he knew how to cut. You could see that he knew exactly where he needed to go at all times. His feel for the game, his IQ was really high level. Andre Jackson went for like two points in the first game and like, I think zero in the second game or something. I thought Andre Jackson played fine. Like you could see that the way that he processes the game, the speed with which he thinks about things stood out compared to everybody else on the court. So I tend to look at the combine more in that realm. And I think that that's why to me, there were probably three guys that really helped themselves in my mind over the course of the combine, at least in the five-on-five section. I would say the first one is Olivier Maxence Prosper. Six-foot-eight guy with a seven-foot-one wingspan comes in, drops 21 in the first combine game, doesn't play the second one. But more importantly, he's a guy that did not really show at Marquette that he can really comfortably dribble even. There are some feel issues that Omax has to work through, I think, in terms of the way that he reads and reacts and thinks about the game. But his skill level was not something that we got to see a lot of at Marquette. And we got to see a good amount of it at the Combine. We got to see him try to break down guys off the bounce. We got to see him... You know, he plays in transition, but he handled the ball a little bit more in transition. We saw him like escape dribble out of tough circumstances. And he dropped 21 points and had eight rebounds. I thought he was really good. I don't know what he his final decision will be. But certainly I think he positioned himself to probably get a guaranteed contract with his play to, uh, at the NBA Draft Combine. I've been higher on Omax throughout this process as well. I've had Omax at I think 37 or so. So I've had him as a guarantee guy. To me, he just kind of locked that in at the combine. The second guy is a guy I mentioned a minute ago, Ben Shepard. Ben Shepard is about six foot five, six foot six. You know, six, seven wingspan. I think it was something like that. And the big thing for him was playing in that Belmont scheme. For people who don't know, the Belmont scheme tends to be very movement-based, very set play-based, very... uh, You preordain a lot of the reads in that scheme. Dylan Windler is a good example of this. Like Dylan Windler, that scheme is not reactive. It is, you know, proactive. They try and get you open. They scheme you open. Dylan Windler got schemed open. Ben Shepard also got schemed open at Belmont. Dylan Windler has dealt with injuries, and I think it's very disappointing that he's dealt with those, and it's unfortunate. 
But even when he's played, it's felt like he hasn't gotten as open as often as he did at Belmont. It feels like because without that structure, I don't want to say he doesn't know where to go, but he's not as impactful. What Ben Shepard, I think, showed at the Combine was that take him out of that Belmont scheme, he still has great feel. He has still great feel for 45 cuts, baseline cuts. Still has great feel for having the ball in his hands and making good passing reads. He's a reactive player that played in a proactive scheme at Belmont. And then it all came together in the second combine game where he goes for 25 points on eight of 10 shooting three of five from the three point line has three assists, four uh, rebounds, a couple of steals has a blocked shot really showcased that he could actually hold up occasionally on defense. I thought he played in my opinion, very, very well at the combine. And I would not be surprised now to see him get a guaranteed deal. There is not a guy, though, at this combine that like Jalen Williams themselves into the lottery. That's just not the reality of this combine five-on-five setting. There's not somebody that like blew this thing up and like blew the doors off the place. I thought other guys that played well, I thought Seth Lundy did really well, made some movement threes in a way that, you know, a lot of the times at Penn State, it was a lot of catch and shoot actions without a ton of movement to them. Seth Lundy showcasing that he can really knock down shots off of movement uh, in both games. I think he had like 16 and 18 or something like that. I thought Seth Lundy was one of the five or so best players at the combine in the five on five. I thought Jordan Miller was quite good. He just basically did exactly what we expect. Jordan Miller is still going to have to prove that he can shoot and he didn't really do that. But I thought he was long, he was active, he was aggressive on the glass. I thought he did really well, kind of proving what he does well. I thought Amari Bailey played well. I was not expecting Amari Bailey to come in and play well, to be honest. I thought there was a chance he would be a little bit over-aggressive. And he was to an extent. But the thing is that I think I didn't recognize exactly how good his feel is. And I think that getting him out of that UCLA scheme, which does not have an immense amount of space, really helped showcase some of his creativity as a passer and playmaker and also helped showcase some of his comfort level in the mid-range area that we haven't gotten to see much of at all at UCLA, where he was surrounded by Tiger Campbell, Jaime Hawkes, nowhere near a floor spacer and a Dembona at center. I thought Amari Bailey really helped himself. I, I thought he helped himself quite a bit. I would not be surprised to see Amari Bailey get a guaranteed deal now. Th- th- those are the guys that I think really helped themselves in five on five, in my view. There were some guys that played well over the course of, you know, one game, maybe. Like Janai Broom played well in that first game. I thought Ryan Kolkbrenner played pretty well in the second game. I thought Brandon Pajemski played well in his first game. But I think those are the three or four that like really truly put themselves into a bit of a different position maybe by how they played at the combine. But again, Omax might have risen to like 28 or something like that. I I don't know if he did though, to be honest. 
There, there just isn't that guy this year. Okay. NBA draft questions. Is there any smoke to the Blazers trading number three for Aiton from Jeffrey Chen? I find that hard to believe. Yeah, Jeffrey, I think there is zero chance they will give up number three for DeAndre Ayton. Uh, the Suns don't have – the number three pick is worth drastically more than DeAndre Ayton at this point, given the contract Ayton is on. And the Suns don't have other assets to attach to Ayton to try and make it worth Portland's while. So, no, no chance that happens. Um, if it does – that Portland front office should be fired. And I don't think that Portland front office is dumb. I think Schmitz is really smart. Uh, They seem to be good at taking advantageous situations. So no, I I don't think they will do that. I I think there's, that doesn't make sense to me. Krishna Vedantam. Should the Dallas Mavericks pick at number 10, trade that pick to move back or trade that pick for a package? Um... I'd be intrigued by a trade back. I think this is a team that could use depth and assets. If there was something out there that made sense, like maybe I'm struggling to find what that would be like trading back to like number, you know, can can you trade back to 16, maybe Utah wants like nine and 10, can you trade back to 16, get like a player from Utah, one of those like just random dudes they have on their roster that are decent rotation players, and then, you know, get number 16, and then maybe you slide back a few spots and you still end up with Derek Lively maybe. I think that's interesting. You could also just take Casey Wallace. I think Casey Wallace would be a great fit there. Trading back is not a bad idea, though, for them. I don't hate that. I would want to pick up additional assets if I was Dallas. I probably would not be wildly interested in trading for a specific player unless I'm, like, getting OG Ananobi or someone that's, like, a real difference maker for me long term in terms of trading out. If they're willing to do, like, Ananobi for pick 10 and... Tim Hardaway Jr. or something absurd. Sure. Sounds great. But I don't know if Toronto is going to be willing to do that. I I think Toronto will get better offers than that for OG and Anobi. So yeah, I I don't think trading out makes a ton of sense. I would think trade back and maybe try and pick like pick up a interesting veteran piece while also getting another young guy on a rookie scale deal. Curious from Nesta, curious what your thoughts are on Blazers moving the pick. Who would you target? I would just take Scoot Henderson if he falls to three. It feels like that's like a 50-50 shot. Um, If Scoot Henderson falls to three, I would take Scoot. If Brandon Miller's there at three, probably still just take Brandon Miller. I I would take the pick. I I would just use it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they use this pick either. I, I know everyone's kind of acting like this is like a no doubter that they're going to trade this pick, but they invested a lot in like evaluation and scouting when they revamped this front office. 
And I think that those guys have like pretty long-term deals locked in. Not to say that Jody Allen like wouldn't just like pay it out if they felt like the front office wasn't doing a great job. It's possible ownership could decide like, no, we want to compete now around Damian Lillard. Maybe. I don't know. I, I think this front office probably would just rather take Brandon Miller or Scoot Henderson. That That's my read. That's not based off of inside information. Don't aggregate that. That's just like my read on the way that they have operated since getting there. They've taken a lot of flyers on younger players that are interesting. This is a more important decision than that. I think if I was them, I would just use the pick. But we'll see. 24 Seconds asks, how would you rate Reese Beekman, Coleman Hawkins, and Ricky Council at the Combine? I thought Beekman was not very good in the first game. I thought he was quite good in the second game. I really liked the way he attacked. I really liked his quickness defensively. I thought he was quite good in that game. I thought Coleman Hawkins was also quite good in the second game. thought he showcased some switchability defensively. His passing was really quite good. I think Coleman Hawkins should probably go back to Illinois, though. And then your last one was Ricky Council. I, I thought he was a little bit too invisible. Uh, I didn't really love his defensive play all that much. I thought he was okay on that end. I didn't think he was like phenomenal. And then offensively, like, you know, he's a guy that like is a mid-range gunner. Like he's just like not really made for that yet in the NBA. I'm not sure if he's just like totally gone. I don't know what his deal is. I would consider going back to Arkansas if that is an option for him. Um, yeah, three guys that like didn't really move the needle a crazy amount for me. I think all three should probably go back, if I'm being honest. What player does Brandon Pajemski uh what player comp would you give to Brandon Pajemski? He reminds me of Vashawn Leonard. Not a bad comp, honestly. Uh like Luke Kennard is the one that I always say. Yeah, like Luke Kennard kind of vibes for Pajemski, I would say. I'm not a huge Brandon Pajemski fan. I played well in the first combine game, though. I thought that's, I thought he played really, really well in the first combine games. Passing, I thought was really high level. Uh, had a couple of those like high arcing floaters that he loves to take. Rebounded the ball pretty well. I don't think he, I don't think he like moved the needle for himself this week though at all i know people are asking about the like 39 inch vertical leap he doesn't really play with that kind of leap it's not really like a functional vertical leap based on how he uses it on the court it's pretty ground bound offensively maybe you could say he uses it on the glass a little bit but i don't know like it feels like he gets by on the glass more by like terrific positioning than anything else he's a really smart player yeah I- I think the biggest number that he had this week was the eight foot standing reach. I think that's the thing that will concern teams most uh, about him just being an absolute like magnet defensively for mismatches. 
Uh, let's see here. Uh, can you see Jay-Z on Gortman getting drafted or does he have to work for a summer league invite to a two-way offer? I don't think Gortman will get drafted. Um, borderline top 100 guy for me. Interesting athlete. I didn't think he played great at the G League camp either, to be honest. I thought he was fine. Um, I was surprised he got the big combine invite and I thought he was really bad in both the five and five games. Uh, from Rodrigo Savion, do you think Kobe Bufkin will go in the lottery? Really like him for Miami, but he's getting so much hype lately that I don't think he'll be there at 18. I think there's a chance he's there at 18. I love him for Miami. I think that's a great call in terms of fit, both on and off ball. The way that their offense works, I think would be phenomenal for him. I actually, like for him, I kind of go hope he goes to Miami. I think that'd be amazing for like his long-term outlook as a player. Yeah, I mean, he might get there. He might not. I, I think it's 50-50 whether or not he gets there. If the Bucks were to trade for an early second, who would be an interesting player for them to draft? Anybody who can make threes and defend. I think Kobe Brown would be somewhat interesting for them. I think Olivier Maxson's Prosper would be interesting. I think Ben Shepard would be interesting for them. Um Honestly, I think somebody even like Julian Strother, Strother can't defend at all, but he has like real gravity as a shooter, like can shoot from like 30 feet and knock down shots. Again, though, I think this does depend on who they hire as a coach and what kind of scheme they're going to run. I think that's a big question mark. Yeah, I think those guys are the ones that I would look at if I was them. And then finally... Do Julian Phillips and Arthur Kaluma stay in the draft? I don't know. I'm higher on Phillips than most people are because I really like his defense. I don't think Kaluma should stay in. I think that he has a better chance to go back and transfer and get to another scheme and maybe help himself next year. I, I don't think he would go in the top 40 if he was picked or if he was uh, in this draft. Didn't play well in five on five. And didn't play well for basically all the same reasons that NBA teams have questions about him, which are, wait, does this guy like have good enough feel to play in the NBA? Like he tends to catch and survey, doesn't always make rotations defensively, misses passing reads all the time. He did a lot of that in five on five again uh, at the combine. So I, I would think that, he probably ends up – I think he should go back. I don't know what he's going to do. It's obviously his choice. I think he would be benefited by going back to school and transferring somewhere and finding a different spot and exploring that and seeing how it goes. Okay. That's all we got questions-wise. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. I might write something on the Combine going into the weekend. We will see. Uh, again, though, I don't think a lot of people move the needle at the Combine, and we definitely have John uh, Hollinger writing something. So it's debatable whether or not I will do that. Might do more of a deeper dive on the Combine over the weekend when Spins comes on on Sunday. We'll see. I'm sure we will have some decisions by then as well. It felt like to me we didn't really get a ton of, like, pre-draft decisions this year 
like that came at the combine. Typically when people ask these guys at the combine, like, you know, what are your plans? What are you doing? Sometimes you'll get an answer, but this time we didn't get them. Sometimes, you know, agencies work out like a news leak with a reporter that says like, you know, we're doing this, you know, and they have that come out at the combine. The only one that was really newsworthy was Bobby Clintman not going back to Wake Forest. I, that I mean, to me, not going back to Wake Forest is like nonspecific uh, in terms of whether or not he's staying in the draft. We'll see if that ends up being true. I do believe that he's not going back. I'm sure what Kevin wrote, Kevin O'Connor reported Bobby Clintman is not going back to Wake Forest. I'm sure that's right. I'm saying there's a difference between staying in the draft and not going back to Wake Forest. And we'll see if that ends up being, we'll see what Bobby Clintman ends up doing. Bobby Clintman, interesting player, decided not to attend the combine. Keep up that mystery man air. I think that was really smart by the agency to do that. We'll see what ends up happening though. Uh, Please rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back. Probably not tomorrow, maybe on Saturday, I would guess, after another Lakers-Nuggets game. And again, we'll talk Celtics Heat. There's a chance I do some Celtics Heat stuff. We will see. But regardless, this has been great. I'm super glad we did it. Went for 80 minutes. We talked a little bit about basketball. I hope that you guys enjoyed breaking down basketball with me. Until next time, we will talk soon.